Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Um, I want to congratulate you because we've made it. We have reached Romans chapter 8. The promised land of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most beloved chapters in the whole Bible. And it is love for good reason because the words of Romans chapter 8 are words that we not only want to hear, but we need to hear. So let's take a tour, if you will, of some of the most quoted verses from Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness... We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All of that in one chapter. Holy smokes, I left some stuff out too. There's more than just that. And so as we get started here this morning, I would like you to take a moment to reflect and maybe just turn to the person next to you, tap someone if you're sitting by yourself, uh, tap someone in front of you or throw something in the back of their heads, you know, whatever it takes. Just take a moment to tell someone around you what these words mean to you. Okay? Take a moment to do that. Okay, there's, there's a lot we could say about why these verses are meaningful, right? And, and part of it is because they speak to um, God being God over all things. Uh, they speak to God's deliverance of us. It speaks uh, to victory and to broken hearts and to all of those things. And there is such an undercurrent of hope within these verses. They are powerful words, church. 
Words that many have gone to over and over again for hope in the darkest of times, for encouragement when they felt like they couldn't take another step, for comfort when loss was overwhelming. There's just one little problem. You knew I was going to do this. These verses are often taken out of Romans 8 in the form that I just gave them to you. Kind of one at a time. And, and Levi is not happy about it. They are taken out of Romans 8 in this form, meaning they are pulled out, these verses, to stand on their own. So someone is hurting and we say to them, and we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Someone is feeling like God is nowhere near them and we say, who can separate us from the love of God? What happens when you pull these verses from this wonderful chapter out to stand on their own? They are still encouraging, sort of. But they might look like they are saying something that they aren't really saying. It's like uh, in the movie The Princess Bride, where the guy keeps on saying, inconceivable. It's inconceivable. And at one point, you know, the guy turns to him and says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> Taken out of context, these verses can paint a picture of a truly victorious life where God's blessings are poured down on us. I mean, look at them again. If God is for us, who could stand against us? But when you take that just by itself, doesn't it sound a little bit like nothing's going to go wrong? Doesn't it sound a little bit like Nothing will stop us if we are truly the children of God. Well, yes, Bryce. Yes, it does sound that way. But we all know that life is not like this idyllic picture that one can get from these verses. Why? Because life is hard. And it's complicated. And we suffer, we struggle, we lose those we love, and we experience all those things as children of God. We still experience these moments of suffering and loss. We still experience those moments where it feels like nothing is going right. Like when I was uh, preparing to go to this event this weekend, I was packing up like crazy. I finally get everything into my car and I can't find my keys. The keys to lock up the church and, and to get, and I'm looking everywhere for my keys. And I've got my backpack on, I've got my coffee cup in my hand, I'm looking everywhere, I can't find my keys. I put my backpack down in disgust, and as I do so, I see the keys in my hand. <laughs> Brutal, right? Yeah. I'm going to decline quickly, by the way, just, just so you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, life is, is, is like that, and much more. Much more than that. And here's... Here's my concern. In those moments, there are many who have looked at Romans chapter 8 or who have been quoted Romans chapter 8 in the middle of suffering and struggle and loss. And they wondered why those words of victory didn't apply to them in that moment. 
And what conclusions are they left to come to? Well, maybe I'm not loving God enough because God is promoting this victorious life. And because I'm not victorious, I must be doing something wrong. Or, just as bad, perhaps God doesn't love me like this says he does. Now, those are two extreme ends, to be fair. I remember uh, this happening to me, you know, when I was sort of in the, the, the darkest part of my depression, when I couldn't uh, figure out which way was up, someone out of great love for me quoted to me, seek first his kingdom and all things will be added unto you. And I smiled and I said, thank you. But in my head I said, you idiot. Don't you think if I could just do that, I would? Don't you think I've tried to do that before now? Okay, so now that I've taken all the joy out of these passages that we love, I want you to know that Romans 8 is an important chapter in Paul's letter. And everything we said about it in the beginning is still true. Okay? So, so don't get confused. Everything we said about hope and encouragement, all those things are still true about these verses. And what if I were to tell you that the actual meaning of them is better than what we have maybe allowed it to be. What if it's better? Chapter 8 starts, uh, well, Chapter 8 was never uh, meant to stand alone. And, and hopefully you've realized this through our study of Romans, that one idea immediately builds on the next, or uh, the idea previously, and then gives what's necessary for the next verse. So we know already through our study that we can't just take Romans 8 to stand alone. It was never meant to. It was meant to come after Romans chapter 7. That's why they're numbered that way. So the place to start here with this passage is to look back at what we learned last week. So here's what we saw last week when we covered all of Romans chapter 7. Number one, the law is not responsible for the sin in our lives. It does allow sin to be fully realized by declaring something to be sinful. Basically, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that that uh, the law brings life to sin because it declares something as sinful and then we know it's sinful, but what do we do? We keep doing it, right? Number two, we have a sinful nature. There is a part of us that is always going to be susceptible to the pull of sin, whatever that sin may be. Number three, sin is a power that we face and it will take the slightest opportunity to influence us any way that it can. You know, sometimes we talk about uh, the devil as being our tempter or Satan, and those things are still true. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul makes it clear that uh, sin itself is this insidious force looking to get inside of us and to take advantage of us. Because once sin gets in, it produces more. Once sin gets in, it produces more. And as hard as we may try, we cannot outrun the influence of sin on our own. The good we want to do, we don't do. The bad that we don't want to do, we do that instead. I don't understand what's wrong with me. 
Ring a bell? But lastly, praise God that we have a Savior who overcomes our failures. And it is in that context of great anger, self-frustration, desperation, recognizing a deep need for Jesus that Paul writes in this chapter. It is, seven is the foundation, and as I told you last week, you cannot fully appreciate Romans chapter 8 if you don't identify with Romans chapter 7. 7 is the foundation. So, number one, our first point here for today is that the context for Romans chapter 8 really matters. Like a lot, a lot. These wonderful verses that are so easy to pull out, they all happen within this greater discussion. So let's look back at the, uh, the words that Paul ended Romans chapter 7 with, from Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. And I want to remind you uh, that when this was written, it was one letter, right? So the chapter breaks and verse breaks were not there. So this immediately goes into what Paul says next. So here's what he says. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from his body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. His conclusion then is this. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is his lead in verse to chapter eight. His lead in thought that both of these forces are at work in him. Okay. And does God's law, does God's will, does God's desire always win out in him? No. It doesn't. And he recognized that a lot of that is his fault. That it doesn't win out in him, and it doesn't. So he ends uh, this chapter by expressing that great frustration, by expressing that he, Paul, as one who is a child of God and is empowered by God to do, go do great things is not living a life of full-out victory even over sin. You see that? Even over sin, he is not living a life of some massive, incomparable victory, at least as we would define it as such. Romans chapter 8 then starts with one very important word, which helps us understand the flow of this. It's a word we've seen several times throughout Romans because, again, he's building on each idea, and that word is therefore. Chapter 8 starts out with the best news to someone who is living in the reality of chapter 7. And the best news that he can give coming out of chapter 7 is this. In Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. In Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. And Vera says, amen. Church, this is big news. This is really big news. So let's go to chapter 8, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 4. Therefore, 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now I know what you're thinking. No wonder we take verse one by itself. It's so much easier if we just take verse one. Now, Paul laid out for us in Romans chapter 6 that when we are baptized into Jesus, we participate in his death, burial, and resurrection. Our old self, controlled by sin, dies, and we are raised to a new life. This is what it means to be in Christ. We also know, based on chapter 7, that this process of putting off the old life and living the new life is ongoing. That you could even say that as Christians, we are constantly trying to live the new life and struggling against the old. Just like Paul is doing in chapter 7. But here is the good news, folks. There is a new sheriff in town, and that sheriff is the Spirit of God, which is doing new things in us in this new life. The old law is the power of sin that inevitably results in death. Jesus has defeated, has defeated that, that penalty, that death that we receive from sin. But as Paul stated, that the factors of that old law don't just go away. Sin is still pulling at us and at our flesh, at our, 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 our sinful nature. The new law of the Spirit says this, that only by living in union with Jesus Christ can believers break the power of sin in their lives. And it is the Spirit of God that you partner with who provides victory and is the possession of every child of God. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And that, my friends, makes a huge difference in this whole mess that is humanity trying to live in the way that God wants us to. And he uses this word law again, but we know that the, the old law, it only served to condemn us. It required a righteousness that we could not meet because our sinful nature would always win out in one way or another to help us break the law. The law of the spirit, however, here's what's so wonderful. It tackles that problem head on. Uh, maybe you have worked at times in your life with someone you know, in any field, maybe someone like you're working in your house or a doctor or a dentist, and or you go into someone and they give you very vague answers to what your problems are. Well, you know, we might need to take that wall out, but won't know until I get in there. <laughs> Kelly, can you identify with that? Yeah. yeah. 
So sometimes you have experience with, with those kinds of people, but that's not what Jesus is describing here by the Spirit, because the Spirit knows exactly what the problem is with us and how to help us live this new life. Jesus solved the problem that the law could not solve, namely that we would keep sinning. He overcame the power of sin and death, condemning sin, so the requirements of the law, Paul says, would be met in us who have died and been raised again with Jesus. And then the Spirit comes in, and it empowers us to do things that we could not do on our own. Therefore, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Because God, God knows all about the Romans 7U. I hate to break this to you. It's not a secret. God knows all about the Romans 7U. And what Paul wants you to know is that God does not condemn you for the fact that you fail. And that you're gonna continue to fail. And that you're gonna struggle with faith and life and self-identity. But God doesn't look down on you for those things, you see. Because he knew that about you before he sent Jesus to die for you. Therefore, because he knew all these things, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. That's pretty good news. Now, the key to making all of this work is that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. Jesus did the hard work of overcoming law and death, but it's the Spirit again inside of us that allows us to live the new life we have in Jesus. So he continues to describe this in verses 5 through 11. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile. It does not submit to God, nor can it do so. That's an interesting thought there. Nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then they don't belong to Christ. But Christ is in you. Then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And so here's, here's what Paul is kind of, you know, trying to say here. There are, again, two forces at work. Remember, before it was uh, the law versus God. 
It was obedience versus uh, the righteousness that God gives us. And in this case, there are two forces that are at work in us. There is the law, which brings what? Death. Okay? There is the law that brings death, and there is the spirit that brings life. The law that brings death and the spirit that brings life. The spirit of God lives within those who belong to Christ, who have died with him and put to death their old selves and are living or doing their best to live this new life and to put off that old self daily. So what is the function of the spirit? What do we learn from this that the spirit does? Well, when we lived in the flesh, we were controlled by the flesh. This is what Paul again said in Romans chapter 7. We were not capable in that state of truly, you know, being gods when we were living in the flesh. But with the spirit inside of us, guess what? The flesh no longer controls you. Instead, you are empowered to live a godly life. Why? Because the spirit lives inside of you. It's with you all the time. The Spirit gives us guidance that leads us into the ways of God. It shows us the way, and because the Spirit is showing us the way, we have this byproduct of life and peace. We are living life as it should be lived, as God envisioned from the beginning. But here's something else. The Spirit living inside of you and working in you proves to God that you actually are his. It shows God that you are living this new life and not just pretending to or not just saying you are. Why would God want proof? Well, has God been burned by humanity before? Uh, yeah. From the beginning. But the spirit of God inside of us proves that, that we are his and the spirit gives life. And we contrast this again with the fact that sin brings death. The spirit, Paul says, raised Jesus from the dead so, to, so that spirit gives us life. Just as it raised Christ from the dead, it raises us from the death of sinful nature. So the, the good news here is that we aren't actually just left alone to struggle against sin. You aren't left alone to do it. You are in partnership with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will help you live the new life. But, just like he has said earlier, you have to choose still. You have to choose to be a partner with the Spirit. You have to choose to listen to the Spirit. You have to learn to seek out the Spirit's guidance in the things that are going on in your life. And let me tell you something. Part of what we're seeing here is that the harder we try on our own to fix our mess, the worse the mess gets. Right? The worse it gets. It's like trying to cover the rice you spilled on the floor with the 
spaghetti you had yesterday. <laughs> it's all still there. The harder we try to do this ourselves, the worse things tend to get. But praise God that he didn't leave it to us to figure things out. That he didn't just say, you know what, Jesus solved this problem of death, so now just make all the right decisions. He didn't. Instead, he calls us into partnership. But I say this to you just to remind you that the Spirit is not, and never does it say here that the Spirit of God is going to solve all your problems for you. It's not. What it is going to do is walk with you, live inside of you, and give you the opportunity to live a new life. But you still must choose. Lastly here, death is a part of all of our story. But for those in Christ, death does not have the last word. From verses 12 through 17. Here it is again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, this is good stuff here, okay? You ready? Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So Paul again here makes this important assertion that uh, you have a choice as to what it is you are going to do. You can live according to the flesh or according to the spirit. If you choose the flesh, it will lead to death. If you choose the spirit, it will lead to life. Now, it's important for us here to talk about what Paul means by life and death. Because he's been saying this a lot. He's been saying this a lot. And, and these concepts are crucial to us getting the whole message that Paul wants for us here in Romans chapter 8. So is Paul asserting that if we live in the Spirit, we will never die? Because the Spirit brings life. No. Your flesh will still die. Okay? So he's, he's not saying that. Paul knows that all day, one day we are all going to die. What Paul is talking about then is what happens when we experience that death. There is an ultimate end. There's an ultimate end. If you choose the flesh, the death that you die in the flesh remains as death. What that means is that because you chose the flesh, you will forever be separated from God by death. And this is the eternal death that Paul is referencing. However, if you choose the spirit, your body will still pass away, but you will not be separated from God by death because Jesus has overcome death. And the spirit living inside of you brings new life. 
And death, church, cannot keep you from God. Death cannot keep you from God. We will all die. But for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to God, this death will not be permanent. So, in what way, then, do we belong to God? Well, I want you to take note of the personal nature of the description that Paul uses here. Because um, in Paul's time, these words would have been pretty, almost shocking, to a degree. Words that you would not use to describe God. In your life before Jesus, you were not a child of God. But now that you have participated in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, God has adopted you. He has taken you from the family you were in before that only brought death and brought you into his family where you can have life. He has made you his son, his daughter. And what's interesting is the Jewish people didn't really have much of a tradition of adoption. They had, you know, things worked out within the family system. And so uh, adopting children that were not your own wasn't something they normally did. However, the Romans had a well-established legal custom of adoption. So Paul extends the concept of how the Romans understood adoption, which is you would take someone else's child and make them your own. Not take. Let's not use that word. You would adopt someone else's child and make them your own. He uses this to illustrate that the acceptance of faith, the, the, the faith that someone has, they're, they're dying with Christ, brought the believer into the family of God as an adopted child who attains, though they were not the fathers, the status of an equal son and daughter. So much so that Paul says we are co-heirs with who? Christ, the biological son of God. It is a spiritual adoption which replaces the natural relationship with God that had been forfeited through the fall. And, and what I love about this image is that Adam was once a child of God, but when he chose to sin, that family relationship was broken. But God was not content to leave it that way. God was not content to leave it that way. And instead... Instead of making us earn our way back to the family, he accepted that, you know what, they're living in a different family now. And that family is not taking them where I want them to be. So God does all of these things through Jesus, through the Spirit, through all of this, to adopt you, to bring you back. So there is nothing anymore between you and God. And in fact, our relationship with God is so personal that we use intimate family terms with God. We say Abba, which is another name for father that is mentioned only three times in the New Testament. And it's always used uh, in the context of prayer or, or, or speaking with God. Uh, Jesus says this word. 
in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, indicating that he prayed in the everyday, this is pretty cool, Jesus prayed in the everyday language of family when he spoke to God. And that makes sense, right? Because he is the Son of God. And the barrier between him and God, it's, just, it's not there, so he can speak to God the Father and say, Abba, Father. And you, who were adopted by God, can approach God in just the same way. Dad. Just as Jesus, the Son of God, prayed to God the Father with family language, we approach God in the same way. And how does that happen? The Spirit makes it happen. The Spirit makes it happen. It facilitates this relationship with God. And, and the promise, the end result of all this is so amazing. Again, uh, we are heirs to all that God has promised and that all that God wants. We are going to receive those things as his beloved children. But we cannot sleep on the last part of this verse. Because what does he say? We share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Jesus suffered before he was glorified as the risen Lord. And Paul wants us to know in the middle of all of this language <clears throat> that what God is promising is life with him. He is not promising it's going to be easy. He's not. Was Jesus' road easy? No. I mean, even if you take the crucifixion out, think about just his life on earth. Growing up poor, basically being homeless for the last three years of his adult life. Being yelled at, threatened. People try to kill him. There's an underlying plot to kill him pretty much from the time he's born until the time he does die. People hate him. And they let him know it. And people pretend like they're nice to him and they talk about him behind his back. Jesus did not live an early life. And guess what? That dude was super victorious in God. I am overwhelmed by all the imagery that is packed into just these few verses. But let's recap what it says. <clears throat> Number one, the promises of God are built upon our need for him and do not promise us a perfect life. Number two, the spirit of God is what makes living a new life possible. Number three, we will continue to struggle with our sinful nature, but the Spirit of God draws us closer to God, helping us to stay connected to Him. Number four, the Spirit lives inside of us, showing God that we belong to Him and marking us as His. Number five, God has adopted us as His children, making us heirs to all of His promises. And number six, just as Jesus suffered, so we too will suffer on our way to glory. But 
the big thing is you don't have to live in that suffering and failure, you see. Because there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. There's only life. And this morning we reflect that there is, in fact, great news to be found in Romans chapter 8. But that good news happens in the middle of a story of a life that is full of joy and hope and love, but it also has pain, struggle, loss, and sorrow. And in this truth, we find that God is a real God, dealing with people who live real lives and have real problems. And God says to us, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. You don't have to carry that weight with you anymore. Jesus has taken care of it. The Spirit will help you through it if you choose to partner with him. Life will not be easier, but it will be a whole lot better knowing that it is God who wins. Amen.